welcome to Michael and Ethan in a Room with Scotch. I am Ethan, and I am in a room with Scotch. I'm I'm Michael. I'm 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 in a room with with Scotch in it too. Thank you, Michael. Um, there's Scotch in the same room that I'm in. Yeah, we're we're both in in a room with Scotch, so we've fulfilled the parameters of the episode or of the show. I'm in a room title, and there's Scotch in this room. What Scotch is in this room, Michael? The Ben React, the Smoky Twelve, Speyside Single Malt Scotch Whiskey, three cask matured, uh, under the supervision of Master Blender Rachel Berry. Thank you, Michael. Um, what was the last Scotch that this show did before this Scotch? Uh, the last Scotch that uh, we did before this one was uh, Ben React, the Twelve, Speyside Single Malt Scotch Whiskey, uh, under the supervision of Master Blender Rachel Berry. Thank you, Michael. Um, I had you do it this time because I did want to say the same thing that we've said for the last now four episodes in a row, including this one. But like, I didn't want to say it. My voice was getting kind of tired. So I appreciate you yeah. sort of spelling me there, uh, as the kids say. <laughs> um, yeah. All right. That said, uh, we uh, there's more. There's more to the introduction, but there's I think more. first... My wife should probably read the rules of this podcast because this is a very strict podcast with uh, rules that are very important. Mm -hmm. Rule one. Once the scotch is poured and the glasses clink, the scotch must not be mentioned at any time. If anyone mentions it, they lose. Rule two. No one's mother should be mentioned in any pejorative sense or any other sense not directly indicated by the text of the book being discussed. If any mothers are mentioned, the mentioner loses. Rule 3. Ethan must never say the phrase, first paragraph. If he does, he loses. Rule 4. Michael must never say the words, vampire, vampiric, or any derivative thereof. If he does, he loses. Rule 5. If anyone has to use the bathroom during an episode, he or she loses. However, this should not stop anyone from doing so because this podcast is anti-UTI. Rule number 6. The wives are entitled to one glass of scotch or some equivalent beverage. Rule number 7. If four scotch-centric episodes pass with no losses, then everyone loses. And what happens if someone breaks the rules? If one person breaks a rule, they receive a punishment in the form of a verbal stunt chosen by the person who did not break the rule. All that being said, everyone, drink responsibly. Yeah, Ethan. Yeah, Michael. Gentle Gentle listener. Thank you, wife. Uh, Now, Michael, we are reading... A pretty old book, a pretty old book in some mm-hmm. more recent translations. So your translation is itself pretty old, um, right? But you're right. Thank you for cueing me by squeaking the lid off of your scotch bottle. We do before I talk about that. Need to uh, pour the scotch, clink our glasses, and uh, get the podcast going for real. These last three minutes or so, three to four minutes have been. The fake podcast. We need to start the real podcast. So <laughs> here goes, Michael. Here's mud in your eye. Skunk. 
No, Michael, where have you? Comes from mud what? in your eye. What's that? Where's that come from? Where's that? Where's that phrase? The mud in your eye. Here's mud in your eye come from. All right, I'm going to be fully and completely honest about this, and like anyone listening to this who like wants to cancel me, like here's your <laughs> shot, because uh, and, and like that that will be several layers different like opportunities in what i'm about to say i learned that salute from the 1960s uh tv movie davy crockett and the river pirates starring fess parker um a character in that movie as i recall says that it is an old new orleans toast um, I have oh since encountered it in other cultural artifacts, and the it's usually either implied or stated that it's an old New Orleans toast. Um, so I think that either that's true mm-hmm. or that that's like a well-respected bit of cultural mythology. Now, sure. part of the reason I say, you know, cancel me if you've got to, is that like, I was both a fan of Davy Crockett and the River Pirates and Davy Crockett, King of the Wild Frontier, in which very mythologically is depicted um, the death, uh, borderline martyrdom of Davy Crockett at the Alamo. Um, And -hmm. I have since learned more about the Texas Revolution and the uh, um, Mexican-American War that followed it by about a decade. And have learned mm-hmm. that these were both pretty pro-slavery conflicts. And that mm-hmm. it's not an exaggeration to say that Davy Crockett died defending slavery in Texas. Um, <laughs> whether he intended to do that or, you know, had other motivations um, is a debate, I think, that can be had from what I understand of the history. But, like, I don't feel great about all of that. So, um there's that. Uh, anyway, Michael, thank you for unlocking the sordid uh, past details of the salute. Here's mud in your eye. Uh, I'm making a mental note, actually, to research that salute and try to find like a non-racist history of it. Um, and it occurs to me that I don't know that I'll be able to successfully do that. So uh, hopefully... You can always try yeah hopefully that's you know not a not a terrible thing um but you know here's your quest before the next episode (laughs) exactly i was gonna say sometimes uh you set out on a quest not knowing whether the um conclusion of it will be positive or negative but maybe you'll learn some things along the way and that feels like um Pretty find much find out the quest was the friends you made along the way. Okay, the thing I said and not the thing Michael just said feels like uh, the theme of both the third book of Pantagruel and also the fourth book of Pantagruel. And also well... the thing Michael just said might tie in especially to the fourth book of Pantagruel, but we'll get there. Yeah, a little bit. Uh, so we talked a lot, in fact, almost exclusively about the third book of Pantagruel. Um last episode uh mm-hmm. and you know we got essentially to chapter 48 of the third book of Panagruel, at least in my edition apparently in some editions it's 45 um but we got through 
the bulk of the book, which is first, Panurge, defending the idea of defaulting on your debts, and then mostly Panurge trying to figure out whether he should get married. Um, mm-hmm. the, the last few chapters, uh, in my edition, it's chapters 48 through 52, 52 being the last chapter, um, first have to do with a plant called Pantagruelian, um, which I do mm-hmm. want to talk about just a little bit, and then have to do with, like, the preparations for putting to sea of a quest, sort of a sort of a uh odyssey if you will um Mm -hmm. uh that becomes sort of the bulk of the uh the fourth book i want to say that like this is still involved in panners deciding whether he should get married because they decide they need to consult the divine bottle and they can only get there by going on sort of a quest right um so yeah uh, that said, I want to mention the Panagrulian just, like, very briefly. Partly mm-hmm. because, to sort of start with the worst point I have to make, some people have said that Panagrulian is hemp, and that this is sort of a crypto uh, hmm. version, crypto praise of getting high on marijuana and seeing spiritual visions or having spiritual insights or something like that gotcha um actually even screech uh in the introduction to chapter 49 how pantagruel prepared to put to sea and of the plant called pantagruelian uh screech says the apparently miraculous plant pantagruelian is soon perceived to be hemp or more correctly hemp and flax taken since plenty to be one in the same plant Together with asbestos, thought of as linum, uh, as, as, sorry, linum asbestinum, a plant of the same species, Rabelais is taking up a challenge. For Pliny, hemp and flax is a natural miracle with a thousand uses, too many to relate. Um, so, you know, there is something in this, and I mean, uh, you know the uh uh the whole there's a whole thing and you know this is getting into very much like assassin's creed video game territory but um Mm. it is a true historical fact that the assassins were a muslim sect um named after more correctly the word hashashim which is hashish and that you know they would get high on hashish which is related to you know marijuana and do their do their things um and by their Mm. things i do mean murders um (laughs) so like you know there's there is some of that in there um it might be useful to recall that like rabelais is a doctor and that he's exploring you know claims and uses of various you know again especially in this era plants were like if there was a miracle drug it would be a plant um Mm -hmm. you know so like i guess i don't feel super qualified to comment on whether this is about getting high having spiritual visions when you're high versus like a much more mundane sort of doctoral usage and especially you know rabelais is not 
being necessarily literal here. He's mythologizing or he's using, you mm-hmm. know, uh, using these things as uh, uh, symbols and, and myths um, in multiple senses of the word myth. Um, but that is in here and it is a, you know, kind of a hilarious and fascinating section. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, again, yet again to mention Shakespeare because apparently we can't not. Uh, there's, uh, there's been recent archaeology done in like the Stratford-on-Avon of Shakespeare's day that like has uncovered pipes that have um, the remnants of like hemp or of a of a marijuana you know plants having been smoked in them so like Hmm. you know shakespeare may have uh smoked literally smoked marijuana so like you know there's more than one data point to indicate that like this may have been known at this time Mm -hmm. um right i don't have a whole lot else to say on that like i certainly don't want to claim shakespeare or rabelais as like a modern stoner that seems just <laughs> much more gen x than i'm comfortable being uh <laughs> do you have any comments on this michael or are you wisely staying out of this potentially dangerous territory i mean i it's it's certainly a f- very fun section of the of the book here uh talking about this panagrulian um sure and, and you know as they're getting ready to to put to sea which does compass most of the rest of the book i think um but uh i it occurred to me something else that uh we could discuss about book three i don't i don't think it's necessarily a huge thing um but the fact that all of these signs come up as panurge is trying to decide whether he should be married or not and there are all these like fortunes that are told or messages that are given or advice that's that's uh, provided that uh pantagruel and others will interpret as meaning that panurge is going to be cuckolded and every single time panurge turns around and interprets it the exact opposite way right um that uh his his wife will be faithful and give him great fortune and and all of this um so like to to turn this into a, a you know if 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 one of our friends in modern day like even if you were trying to ask me advice for how to make a decision about something um you know a a, a simple sort of exercise we might do is like assume you've made one of the decisions how do you feel about it right you know um and with that sort of thought in mind, it seems like the decision should be made for Panners. He just wants to get married. Like <laughs> he, like he, every single time he turns it around and is like, "But it's going to be good for me." Right. And so, like he just he wants this. Right. Um. But for the sake of the the comedy, it's got to get dragged out in in various ways. Um. Also, something about the the decision that occurred to me really as I was just paging through the. Uh, the chapter headings again. Um, I I don't know for sure how much is in this, but 
the first chapter that goes into whether Panners should get married or not is chapter nine. Um, or no, cha- sorry, chapter seven. Um, uh, that leads, well, he's talking about his cod, cod piece there, but then he it, it leads into the question of uh, whether he should get married or not. But the chapter right before that, chapter six, uh, is talking about um, how married men, newly married men, can get out of going to war. Right. So what I'm wondering is, was Panners really just trying to get out of having to go to war? <laughs> I know this is a little bit backtracking. In, no, in that's fine. No here, worries. But, but uh, it's just... Uh, you know, interpretation I had not thought of. Because, um, okay. well, the cod piece too, like, that whole thing that's in these the chapters immediately following, it's like, um, it's in chapter 8, the title is Why the Cod Piece is Held to be the Chief Piece of Armor Amongst Warriors. Sure. And that's right after you see that Panners is deciding not to wear his anymore. Right. So it's like he doesn't want to wear his cut piece anymore. Instead, he's gonna get married <laughs> um, and not have to go to war. It's another thing that seems like it could just wholesale be lifted out and put into Don Quixote as something <laughs> Sancho Panza would do. Right. I don't know. Like I was, I was a uh, sort of reading on to. Uh, the next chapter, um, mm. which in my edition at least is called How Panerge Had a Flea in His Ear and Gave Up Sporting His Magnificent God Beast. Uh, right. And the beginning is, the next morning Panerge had his right ear pierced in the Jewish style and hung from it a small golden ring inlaid with silver thread. In its cutlet was set a, th- a flea. Um, mm-hmm. And... Uh, uh, Screech says in the time of Rabelais to have a flea in one's ear meant to burn with lust um, and mm-hmm. relates it back to sort of um, s- slave and master based relationships from Deuteronomy um, sure p- uh, Screech interprets this as Panerge is a slave of his concupiscence um, mm-hmm. so uh, on well, a surface level, it's explicitly level. stated too that uh, in that chapter seven too uh, that uh, Panners is is talking. He says, "Do you see this russet? Doubt not, but there lurketh under it some hid property and occult virtue known to very few in the world. I did not take it on before this morning, and nevertheless, I'm already in a rage after lust, mad after a wife, and vehemently hot upon untying the codpiece point." yeah uh i don't know oh yeah okay i I was gonna say i don't know if i have that passage in mind but i did just find it um great even earlier in that chapter again in my edition uh i said panerge have got a flea in my ear i want to get Mm. married so like Mm -hmm. (laughs) to me it more feels like instead of using getting married as an excuse to not go a fighting 
Panners is using the idea that he doesn't want to go a fighting as an excuse to want to get married, which kind of ties into your earlier mm. interpretation of him. You know, just sort of, again, the thing you said about, like, if you told Panners, okay, I've taken away the option to get married, or if you told him I've taken away the option to not, um, it's clear which one of those he would, like, fight you on. Sure. If that makes sense. That, yeah, that makes that makes a good amount of sense to me. Um, yes. I mean, I think the whole thing is so ambiguous, the whole book and the whole quest. Oh, yeah. Like, you probably could, inter- and, and maybe even part of the point, the, the part of what Rabelais is up to in the third book, is the idea that, like, you could interpret anything either way. Um, sure. Like, Panurge interprets something no matter what the the input is you know he interprets it his way and as the reader you can interpret panurgia's interpretation or panagrul's interpretation or rabelais interpretation like you can sort of read it on the surface and then read the opposite thing below it like it's mm-hmm. again maybe even part of what i love about it so much is like it's so perfectly ambiguous yeah that yeah like you know, because I like you as a person, Michael, like, okay, I'm going to cut that out of the podcast, oh, but, no. um, you know, I do want to, like, to... support your, uh, you know, your interpretation and, like, make you right, but it's, like, maybe the whole point is that nobody can be right about this. Right, no, and and I don't necessarily think I was trying to say this is the conclusive uh, meaning behind it all it's just it, it occurred to me that there's a connection yeah i think here. it's definitely an available interpretation um mm-hmm. is you know not inherently wrong um yeah and it that's like mm-hmm. as much as i can say about it non-ambiguously sure uh that makes sense sure anything else you want to say about like the third book michael no, I don't think so. Okay. Uh, I wanted to look at the end of the third book and definitely the fourth book. And, you know, this goes bleeds into the fifth book. Um, mm-hmm. I'm more interested, frankly, in the fourth book than I am in the fifth book. But we can talk about it. Sure. We can talk about whatever. But um, the, the end of the, th- the third book and especially the fourth book and even the fifth book uh, also... To me, I'm going to talk about Shakespeare again because, like, to me, it parallels um, The Tempest and specifically the fact that The Tempest occurs towards the end of Shakespeare's life, probably. Um, Even though... Tempest, I guess? Yeah, this goes in our Tempest sequence. Um, Even though, you know, The Tempest occurs 50 years after the last books of rabelais but um right specifically in the use of voyages and um uh related matters as sets of imagery um and the fact that all of this all of rabelais um certainly all of shakespeare is post columbus right it's post 1492 um sure meaning that 
a thing that's in the zeitgeist in France and England, and including France, which I should probably focus on, but will I? We'll see. Um, you know, the voyages of discovery, voyages of exploration, mm-hmm. the very beginnings of colonialism, but much more voyages of exploration where, like, we didn't know that in going to the europeans didn't know that in going to america they were introducing diseases that were potentially wiping out 95 percent of the previously existing population like um to us it was just exploration it was just discovering new things and like that's a very common interpretation specifically of the tempest um as well as a few of Mm -hmm. shakespeare's other works but especially the tempest and I think, you know, you can see that in the fourth book, the, this idea that, like, just the structure of it is very much we're setting out, we're going to these different islands. It becomes very episodic in a way that, like, yeah. you know, the other books are arguably episodic in certain ways. Yeah. But uh, the fourth book is the most, like, it's almost as if Rabelais, like, gets toward inventing a more modern version of the novel in the first three books and then takes it back and invents the sort of the picaresque that like Don Quixote mm-hmm. will pick up on and, you know, mm-hmm. even Tom Jones will pick up on, among other things. Um and of course, like, it's interesting too, because this is both backward looking and forward looking. And I've already talked yeah. about the forward looking part, but like it's backward looking in the sense that like this is also the odyssey right like you know this is and i and i can't imagine that that's not in rabelais mind to one extent or another oh my gosh um right so you know it's it's again both like looking back to the progenitor of western literature in a very real way Mm -hmm. as well as looking forward in the sense that like it's probably influenced by you know some of these voyages of discovery and the the idea that there are colonies and and explorations happening in these new parts of the world that were previously undiscovered um yeah mm-hmm. did you have some thoughts michael you you kind of sounded like you maybe did ah well, uh, maybe a couple um it's interesting that it it becomes so episodic after what's arguably the most tight knit of the books in the quintet you know book three um is closest to having a straightforward overarching plot perhaps yes um or at least through lines or whatever thematic through line Yeah. yeah um and then you jump into book four with this episodic thing that uh is paralleled uh um I mean, certainly backwards by the Odyssey, forwards by things like um, uh, Gulliver's Travels. Yes. Um, you know. Uh, <laughs> Hard to imagine and... that Gulliver's Travels exists without Gargantua and Pantagruel before it. Honestly, like, I, it, more than one person mistook Gulliver's Travel, mistook Gargantua and Pantagruel for Gulliver's Travels when asking me what I was reading. <laughs> oh, interesting. <laughs> Yes, more than one person. That's fascinating. Um, so, yeah, that's... And, like, it makes sense, especially if you look at, like, the cover of um, the Burton Raffle edition. Yeah. 
Um, it looks like it could be straight out of Gulliver's Travels. Easily, yeah. Um, you've got this giant with the little littler people running around. Um, but yeah, so that that's sort of, um, yeah. It, that so that's that's an interesting thing. Well, that, and mm-hmm. sorry, I don't know if you had. Well, just, it, stylistically too, mm-hmm. that uh, Rabelais has just been in flux with his style throughout the whole thing. All of it. Yeah. Like, uh, it just... Stylistically is actually what I was about to interrupt you to uh, talk about. Right. Partly because, like, something I've uh, not avoided mentioning, but sort of uh, not taken opportunities to mention throughout our discussion of these books, uh-huh. is the idea that Gargantua and Pantagruel, instead of being a novel or being um, certain other types of narrative, could be a Manipian satire. Um, and Manipian okay. satire has come up on this podcast before in trying to quantify like what a narrative like this could be if it's not a novel. Um, mm. I get a lot of this out of Northrop Fry and like possibly badly understood Northrop Fry that I read several years ago. So like as usual any actual literate credentialed literary critics listening to this i'm sorry but um manipian satire is sort of like sometimes considered the genre of gulliver's travels it's like it's novel-esque um but it's it's doing different things from what a novel would do um the characters aren't meant to be representations of human characters so much as they are like representations of um cultural movements or governmental bodies or other things that are very much borderline sort of allegory uh, um that's what i was gonna say sounds allegorical it's like allegorical but like when you've when you have dived so deep into an allegory that like it is also a person in your narrative um it's like almost striding a border between allegory and novel in a sense. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, it's it's a one of these things where it's like a lot of works exist along a spectrum where if you have mm. Manipian satire and novel on two ends, like a lot of things exist somewhere in between and some are more one and more sure. another. Um, I did want to bring this up in the fourth book specifically, because I know that um, some of the uh, uh, islands in this book are almost very specifically sort of uh, in this uh, in this vein, um, possibly mm. sort of a proto, you know, proto version. Um, specifically, I'm paging through trying to remember yeah uh, where it is but like uh chapter 12 uh how panagrel passed procuration and of the strange way of life amongst the chick chick chickenoos um okay uh and screech's introduction to this chapter says on this island dwell procure procure rears double e hmm. um pejoratively named pure procurators adepts at wrangling and should canoes 
litigious lawyers, adepts in chicanery. Um, mm-hmm. So, like, it, it, basically to really sort of, you know, do the the worst version or the the um, uh, least information version. These are, like, people Rabelais encountered in the law that he doesn't like. And he goes on to have, like, several mm-hmm. chapters about, um, uh, you know, basically satirizing things he doesn't like about lawyers or the law. Right. Um, but then in some of the, like... Yeah, the... My, my chapter calls it pettifogging. <laughs> yes. And the these lawyers are catchpoles. Yes. Um, so... But then it's, like, in the middle of this book, uh... There's a big storm uh, starting chapter yes. 18 again in mine. Um, mm-hmm. In some versions of chapter 8, actually. Uh, oh, wow. But going down to chapter 20... 22? The fallout is like up through chapter 24, yeah. 25 in mine. Um, yeah. You know, and these are like, uh, you know, there's stuff about Panagruel, there's stuff about how Panurge versus Frere Jean comported themselves. This is like mm. character stuff that I don't know necessarily makes sense as like allegory so much, at least not allegory right, of right. outside things. Like maybe it's, it's you know, the this arrow is very fond of sort of categorizing like types of people or even types of emotion within a person so there may be some of that going on but like it's definitely different mm-hmm. from that um and uh specifically like at some point um and i should have you know made a note or whatever but at some point there's definitely uh satire in this book one of the islands they arrive at is um more or less a satire of like people who follow the pope uh Mm. to a sort of oh yes of course okay chapter 45 in mine um oh wait well maybe not uh pope big land so chapter 45 in mind is called how Panagruel landed on the island of the pap like pap figues pape figues okay um mine is pope fig land sure uh screech's introduction to this is the pap figues care not a fig for the pope um ha. uh and again this like has to do with some of Rabelais' like compromised loyalties or or uh ambiguous or complicated loyalties in that um you know Rabelais remained a Catholic as far as I know and as far as mm-hmm. I think anyone can tell, but like was definitely sort of on the side of like the idea that the uh um uh the church needed reforming and he was borderline lutheran or borderline some of the the reform movements while still staying within the right um within the church uh 
And I think either earlier or later, uh, there is an island that these guys land on that's, like, very pro-pope and, like, pro-pope to the degree that, like, you know, they don't really care about w what authority the pope sort of, you know, relies on or, or uh, mm -hmm. rules by. It's just, you know... Uh, the Pope is the thing. Um, right. I'm doing a bad job of explaining this, but like, it's it, it. I guess like the big picture of it all is that like this this set of physical islands is um, Rabelais sort of sending his heroes on a tour of the various intellectual and religious and philosophical and theological lands that someone could be in mm -hmm. in his world in his time uh in his place um mm -hmm. so it's you know it's very uh the 18th century would be more known for this but i think the 16th 16th and 17th centuries have a great deal of it of like figuring mental landscapes or philosophical landscapes as literal mm. landscapes or physical landscapes as a way to think about them. Mm -hmm. um, and to me, that's very much what the fourth book is. And I think the connection with exploration of new worlds has to do with how that idea and that set of ideas maybe influenced um mm -hmm. uh influenced intellect and philosophy and theology um there's maybe a parallel between columbus as much of a pos as he was you know opening up new physical worlds in 1492 and martin luther you know opening up new theological philosophical and cultural worlds in 1517 mm um i don't know michael what are your thoughts i feel like i've been rambling for a while that's okay no i so the, the this tour of islands is a really interesting thing and um i'm i'm intrigued by some of the stuff you've said something that stood out to me was some of the names of the islands Ooh. Um, and i don't know is whether this names with michael sure you know what this yeah let's let's have a little names with michael yeah, that's the correct here. response um I, I don't know if uh, if Screech gave um, particular footnotes on uh, some of these, but in um, I'm looking at two chapters in particular, chapter 17 and chapter 43, okay. um, and the islands that are visited in those chapters, uh, because all of these islands are actually Hebrew words. There are three islands named in in these two chapters that are all Hebrew words that all occur in one verse in Genesis. I mean, they they occur other places, but uh, they all concur in one verse okay. in Genesis. Genesis one chapter two or chap chapter one verse two. Uh, are we talking about Tohu and Bohu in chapter seventeen? Yep. I don't know if yep. I'm saying and that right. And forty three of Ruach. Okay uh let me find chapter four okay gotcha so like it it's first of all like i recognize tohu and bohu because it's like 
I, I can I can hear my Hebrew professor's <laughs> voice reading these these words. Sure. Um, but that's where in in uh, Genesis one two, you know, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void. Uh, that's tohu and bohu. Interesting. Formless and void. Sure. Um, that's what those two two words are, and like the this is it, it is a relatively chaotic set of islands. You've got the uh, the giant wide nostrils who's eaten up every individual pan, skillet, kettle, frying pan, dripping pan, and brass and iron pot in the land <laughs> for want of windmills, which were his daily food. Um, I, I, I don't know what sort of meaning he's trying to get at behind all of this. It's just ridiculous, and he dies from this. <laughs> sure. Um, uh, so the, there's like this total chaos that's that's happening here. Um, is more or less what I can get out of that. Right. Um, but then you get to f- chapter 43. It's a good chunk of the, the book later. Um, and they go to the island of Ruach, which is also a word in that same verse in Genesis, and that's the word for spirit uh. um, in, in Hebrew. So the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, right? Um, this... Uh, chapter gets back into some of the uh, books one and two thematic things where uh, we're, we're returning again to um, Gargantuan Pantagruel or uh, IBS, a novel. <laughs> um, and like it's all about um, farts and burps and all of this stuff, which the thing is, uh, that's expelling wind, which is another translation of the word ruach. Sure. <laughs> Extremely good. Uh, right. I, I would like to read into the record uh, Screech's um, yes, introduction please. to this, uh, to chapter 43 specifically. It's a pretty short yes. introduction, even as his go. Um, okay. So, chapter 43, how Pantagruel landed on the island of Ruach. Uh, Screech says, some learned banter. In Hebrew, Ruach means both spirit and wind. Animos, mm-hmm. the Greek for wind, has given us the name of anem- uh, anemone, the flower. Mm. Uh, plovers were thought to live on a diet of air or wind. The name Oedipus means swollen leg, head- hence mm-hmm. Oedipodic. Edip- Oedipodic, applied to the gout. Uh, mm. The inhabitants of Ruach have their own sangriel, a restorative balm appropriate to their grossness, a choice wind. <laughs> yes. Very good. Mm-hmm. Um. Okay, we are butting up against our time, as we almost always do in the second or oh fourth gosh. episode. Yeah. Um. Here's what I think about book five, Michael, unless you had yes. anything left to say about book four. No. Well, the the, the one thing about Ruach, too, that I, I wanted to oh, mention, yes. too, is that it makes mention of um, Aeolus. Sure. Um, and so, like, the thinking of the Odyssey and the, the trapping of the wind and, sure. and all of that, it's, it's like, he, it's right there. So, like, the reference to the Odyssey is deliberate. But how could you not do that? Um with a, a seafaring voyage and this is something too that like is kind of a question on my mind i i don't think we have an answer to it necessarily but just this uh um 
conflation of Greek mythology and contemporary settings that goes on in the book. Um, so, like, Greek mythology seems almost contemporaneous with a lot of the action, as well as so many modern things that are happening, too. Yeah. So, like, the time... As well as, like, biblical uh, stories yes. and mm-hmm. things. I think, like... I, I, I think that just Rabelais is just sort of taking all of literature yeah. and using mm-hmm. it as his playground. And right. I think he's not just bothering kind of playing the accordion with it all. Yes. So it's all and specifically, and I think he's not bothering to make on the distinctions to between like, I don't know, like what we would consider religious literature, uh, historical literature, you know, literary literature like poems or myths or whatever like he's just sort of Mm -hmm. throwing it all into the cauldron and stirring it all around and pulling out the the combinations that amuse him the most right and i think that's fine like you know i think that works quite well for this book and it's maybe even Mm -hmm. part of the uh um the carnivalis quality of it is it like no text, no story gets to be taken more seriously than any other. Um, mm-hmm. And if that's true, I mean, I like it on that basis, personally. Sure. Um, that said, okay, book five. Uh, yes. Book five. So there are three major interpretations of book five. One, Rabelais wrote it. One, Mm -hmm. uh, or two, rather, it's a fake. Rabelais didn't write it at all. Or three, some combination of one and two is true. Um, right. Myself, personally, I tend to land on number three, that Rabelais probably wrote part of it, but it, you know, certainly not all of it. Um, Mm. I've been more convinced of that by screech's translation and this is of course screech's translation you know someone who knows very much about this influencing me someone who knows almost nothing um but one thing i've picked up in book five is like a strong reliance on what would later be called like uh freemasonic tropes mystical tropes um a level of like mysticism that doesn't seem present as much in the earlier books um mm. that cuz you know especially the later part like the the 1564 part of a uh, uh, Rabelais life is when the very beginning of sort of the idea of secret societies and secret knowledge and so forth was like either created or resurrected in the renaissance era um and specifically i base this on the idea of them going down into a cave having a mystical experience that changes them and sort of coming back up out of the cave like that's a set of images that a is in don quixote and b is mm-hmm. very reflective of a lot of like the mystic like secret societies of the time you were they were very into death and resurrection rituals and and experiences 
and like the descent into the cave the descent into hell is very much sort of in there it just feels like on a different order of symbolism from the rest of rabelais the other thing that Mm -hmm. convinces me of this is just like screech very much points out how like a lot of the episodes in book five are sort of fan fiction of episodes in the previous four books or just like rewrites or recastings of episodes in those four books um so that's that's how i tend to take book five like you know if we had four episodes per book of gargantuan panagruel like there's a lot more we could get into in book five even if it is imitative sure but like that's my very short thumbnail version of it Michael, do you have anything to say about book five specifically? I really don't have anything to add. Uh, you know, we talked style a little bit here. Um, and in, in my edition, you know, uh, once you get to book four, you've got uh, um, the the new translation by uh, Peter Matteau mm-hmm. uh, after Thomas Urquhart died. Right. Um, and so, like, I did notice a difference in translation style um that went between both books but even in that five seemed a little different from four um sure i i don't have anything more specific to say than just that it it seemed different it seemed both books seemed less vibrant than the three before them um, and five was certainly the least vibrant. Sure. That's all I have to say, to say about it. Um, yeah, I mean, again, like, you know, if we had more time or more interest, like, we could probably get more stuff out of book five. But, like, I, given the parameters we have set ourselves that, like, that seems like seems like a valid amount. Um, that said, uh, we are again headbutting up, uh, real hard against our time. Is there anything Mm -hmm. else you'd like to say, Michael, about Gargantuan Panagruel as a whole? Anything you were really sad you didn't get to already say? Anything you're thinking of here at the end? Nothing until I get to my rating, I think. Excellent. (laughs) All right. Uh... So we are at the end of this year's Mondo book. Um, Woo! Now, the first thing in the script, Michael, is punishments Mm -hmm. as necessary. And because Uh you chose not to lose, it is necessary that we both get punished. Now, Michael, in the past, we have done Shakespeare races. We have done um, races with other poetry. How do you feel about yep. doing a gargantuan panicle race? I am on the same page. <laughs> Wait, are you? I didn't send you the page, did I? No. You okay. Didn't send me the page, yeah. Was... But I'm on it. Okay. Well, here's the page. I'm going to send it to you. <laughs> Great. I love uh, it. I think it should go straight to. Yeah, so this is the Project Gutenberg um, uh, rendering of what I'm pretty sure is Urquhart's translation. 
Um, uh-huh. We are in uh, the volume Pantagruel, the first published volume. Um, I believe we are in uh-huh. chapter two. Um, we yes. are in basically what is the uh, Old Testament book of numbers of Pan- Pantagruel. Uh, so this should be free of copyright from what I understand about Problect Gutenberg. I already know Mm -hmm. I'm going to lose this race. Don't worry about it. Uh, (laughs) this first paragraph is a block of text, right, Michael? It is, yes. Uh, but let's, if you're, unless you have, like, anything else you want to do for punishments, let's try to, like, race to the end of this, Yeah. Just the first paragraph? Or... Yeah, just that first paragraph. I mean, that'll be plenty. Thank okay. you. Yeah, that's that's plenty. You ready? Alright. Yep. Three, two, one, go. Gargantua at the age Gargantua of at the age of four hundred and forty score score forty and four years, four years began his son Pantagruel upon his wife named Badebeck, daughter to the king of the Amorats in Utopia, who died in childbirth, for he was so wonderfully great and lumpish that he could not possibly come forth into the light of the world without the supplicating his mother. But that we may fully understand the cause and reason of the name Pantagruel, which at his baptism was given him, you are to remark that in the year was so great a drought over all the country of Africa that there passed thirty and six months, three weeks, four days, thirty hours, and a little more without rain, and so vehement that the whole earth was parched. Neither was it more scorched and dried up with heat than the days of Elijah than it was at that time, for there was not a tree to be seen that had a leaf or bloom upon it. The grass was without verdure or greenness. The rivers were drained, the fountains dried up, the poor fishes abandoned and forsaken by their proper element, wandering and crying upon the ground most horribly. The birds did fall down from the air for want of moisture and anywhere with the fresh them. The wolves, foxes, hearts, wild boars, fallow deer, hares, coneys, weasels, brocks, badgers, and other such beasts were found dead in the fields with their mouths open in respect of men. There was the pity. You should have seen them lay about their tents like hares that have been run six hours. Meaning to throw themselves into the wells, others entered the within the cow's belly to be in the shade. Those homes called Alabans. In the cut, all the country was idle and could do no virtue. It was almost a most lamentable case to have seen open. the labor of mortal men defending themselves from the vehemency of this horrific drought, for they had work enough to do to save the holy water and the churches from being wasted. But there was such an order taken by the council of my lords, the cardinals, and our holy father that none did dare take but one lick. Yet when anyone came into the church, you should have seen above twenty poor thirsty fellows hang upon him that was the distributor of the water and that with a wide open throat gaping for some little drop drought, like the rich glutton and luke that might fall by lest anything should be lost oh how happy was he that in that year who had a cool cellar underground well planted with fresh wine drag i we we got out of like three lines what i beat you by only like three lines yeah i was gonna say we got out of sync much more quickly than we do when we read like blank verse together and like Sure. I could not tell if you were like three lines ahead or three lines behind, and I did not choose to stop. Same, uh, but Same. yeah, good work. Uh, congratulations, Michael. <laughs> um, I am gonna bury you in a wholesome day. Uh, <laughs> excellent work. Um, that was that was Thank pretty you. punishing, probably for both both of us and our readers <sighs> or listeners that I definitely know are not readers. <laughs> Wait, they're not reading this? Don't worry about it. Um, no. We now move on to ratings. Michael, please rate right. Ben Riach the Smoky 12. Oh, boy. All right. Um, just wow. <laughs> just wow for this scotch. Um, that the, the smoke is fairly intense. Um, and it has, like, this desserty quality of, like, 
chocolate covered cherries. Um, but there's also like all this sort of spice and citrus stuff going on too. Um, uh, it's got a, a long burning finish. Um, there, there's so much complexity to this. I really, I need to, especially for like the price point too, I need to rate this five stars. Okay. Wow. Um, yeah, I love this. I love this so hard. Yeah, I think I agree. I think I am going to rate it also five stars. I agree with everything you said. Like, there is a sweetness to it that would normally not be my bag. But, like, when you say chocolate-covered cherries and then smoke, it's like, that shouldn't work together. But it does. It's so good. It's so I love good. it. I love it so much. Yeah. Um, Rachel Berry, if you ever want to come on this podcast, like... It's your podcast. I don't care what you do with it. Like this is your podcast now. Um, mm-hmm. we're giving it to yeah, you. Yeah, absolutely. We'll wrap it up. Christmas wrapping paper. <laughs> exactly from us uh, to Rachel Berry. Michael, yes. I mean, I I can't I can't agree with you more. So I'm moving on. Um, mm-hmm. Michael, rate. Gargantuan Pantagruel on a scale of buy, borrow, or forget about it. Alright. So, I, I debated within myself a good long while for this. Yes. Um, and I'm gonna fall on a rating of borrow. Sure. And here's why. It's a great book to have on your shelf, but it is very, very hard. <laughs> um, and I like... While I say it's good to have on your shelf, that doesn't necessarily mean you need to own it. You're not necessarily doing anyone any favors by owning it. Um, you can rent it. You can borrow it. Uh, rent it from your library. You know, as as one does rent books, right? Yeah. No, you borrow it from the library, and you can read it in spurts. I might even say read one book at a time. Uh, soak in that one book at a time rather than all five um and with that like i i even tried to conceptualize it in those terms when i was reading it myself uh rather than reading a 788 page novel i was reading 550 page Mm -hmm. books um that's a lot more palatable uh and easy to do from the library uh as well just borrow it renew it a few times and i think you'll get a fair amount out of it if you if you finish it up uh and really really like it which i do go ahead and buy yourself a copy which i'm happy to own for myself (laughs) so interestingly enough my rating is going to be buy it for uh-huh. most of the same reasons that you said borrow it <laughs> like i don't disagree with any of the things you said and if someone listening to this podcast uh someone who hasn't read it or you know has done one thing or the other like really my rating is like do what you want um sure but i think buying it and specifically buying ma screech's edition allows you to Mm. dip into it uh dip out of it like uh, read it at your own pace um this is the reason i don't borrow a lot of things from the library unless i have a very specific reason because like 
Sure. I, I tend to find more that like if I own something and like I can I can just keep it by my bedside and like read it at my own pace or whatever, like having a copy and specifically MA Screech's copy like would allow me to do that better if I bought it. Um now that said, like if if you feel like all of Michael's re- rationale and reasoning for borrowing it make more sense to you, like do it, borrow it. Like I, you know, I don't have any mm-hmm. pride or any skin in this game. Like whatever works best for you. Mm-hmm. Um, I, Michael, your, your uh, rating here did remind me of a bit of screeches. Uh, I want to say like 40 plus page introduction to, gargantuan panic mm. um one of the major sections is just headed read rabelais through or dip into him question mark and it's just one <laughs> short ish paragraph long um where screech says not everybody finds it best to start with page one of pantagruel and to read solidly onto the end of the fourth book or the fifth when rabelais was on the syllabus of virtually every university in the uk some prescribed only Rabelais, Gargantua from chapter 23 to the end. Beginning with the peasant strife leading to Picrocol's War. Picrocolet's War. That may still... uh, Wait. That may still to be a good place to start. That may be a typo. I don't know. Um, Others find the fourth Mm. book the best to begin with. Each book can be read by itself. Others like just dipping in. Many do, keeping Rabelais as a bedside book. Yet in the end, and when the time is ripe, there's mm-hmm. nothing quite like starting with page one of Pantagruel and reading on. We en- enter then into a wise world of kaleidoscopic laughter. Um, awesome. Which, I love that paragraph, I love that recommendation, uh, and I think it basically could encapsulate either Michael's or my uh, version. Um, Absolutely. Either of our ratings, etc. Um so I'm gonna. I, I I will say this too that no I I did not read Screech's edition. Yeah. Um. But from what you've said about uh his work and from uh what I've what I've heard uh in as far as his research and stuff, if you were to own a copy, I would say probably Screech's copy, Screech's edition yeah. is the one you would want. Having owned three different cop three different translations of right. Gargantuan Pantagruel, I completely agree. I think Screech is just, like, Screech has everything that the other editions have and more. Um, Mm. If you were a real completionist, you might own Urquhart as well, just for, like, the influence it has had. But Screech's is the one that I would read and come back to and keep by your bedside, Mm -hmm. for sure. Right. Okay. Uh... Anything else to add there, Michael? No. All right, Michael, please rate the pairing of these books, or rather this book and the scotch. Perfect match, pretty good match, slight mismatch, total mismatch. I'm going to say perfect match uh, once again because you've got all of these elements that, like the smoke and the chocolate-covered cherries that shouldn't work but totally do, and the book does sort of the same thing. (laughs) You've got all this uh wacky humor disgusting humor and like, bodily philosophy stuff. and 
Yeah, all of that. But also and deep it philosophy and yeah, and insight yep. and and storytelling and all that mm-hmm. stuff. Yeah, and uh, if it's not clear from my dovetailing here, I agree completely. Um, <laughs> like, there's an element of the smokiness that's a little bit mean in the way that Rabelais can be a little bit mean, but like the sweetness, the chocolatiness. Um, it's just like balances so nicely that like yeah it's it's a mm-hmm. incredible parallel honestly to um to this book all right michael um i think your book is going to be next in our cycle so i would right. love it if you would talk about what our very next book will be yes um and I, I sent you a copy. I don't know if you've opened I it in the intervening weeks. have not. I have resisted temptation, but I do have it by me right. right now. So Well, I give you permission to open it as I tell you what it is. Thank you. Um, this is the book, excuse me, The House on Vesper Sands Ooh. by Parik O'Donnell. Um, now, this is... so. My wife and I took a trip to Orlando, Florida, uh, earlier this year, and uh, we like going into the airport bookshops. Uh, Frequently, I'm looking for signed Neil Gaiman books. Yep. Yep, Um, yep. But uh, we 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 were just looking around, and my wife was looking for a a new book to read, and she had a handful of uh, options, and this was among them. Uh, and it was one that I saw and was very intrigued by. She has since read it uh, and is interested to know what I think. But as soon as I picked it up, I knew I'm going to read this and I'm going to bring it to the podcast. <laughs> sure. So uh, that's that. I have not read it yet. Um, yeah. Looking forward to it. Yeah. Uh, seems very interesting. Uh, mm-hmm. Michael, I'm going to send you a uh link and i want you to tell me if you okay. have uh what is linked to or if you have read what it's linked to okay do you see it there i see the link and it's coming up i have not read this okay <clears throat> and yeah. you presumably do not own it mm-hmm all right. Well, that will be winging its way to you very shortly. Um, okay. This is a graphic novel. Um, mm. So uh, I think I own the distinction of uh, sending the first graphic novel to a main set of episodes. We've done uh-huh. um, Neil Gaiman before in a special, but I don't think, I think that's the only graphic fiction we've done. Um Right. So this is a book called Sheriff of Babylon, um, written by Tom King. Um, Tom King has become a very popular uh, comics writer in the last, I don't Mm -hmm. know how how long, 10, 10, 15 years maybe. Um, He's known for having done a lot of Batman comics. Yes. He has done... He's very good at Batman. Yeah. Uh, I haven't read any of his Batman. I have read... He did a run of Flash comics. Uh, He also did some Mm. Green Lantern comics that were really interesting. 
Um, I was sort of uh, uh, put on to Tom King by Anthony Birch, who is the dungeon master slash host of the podcast uh, Dungeons and Daddies, not a BDSM podcast, mm-hmm. um, who Anthony is like very into video game and comic book writing and stuff. Um, and I found out that way that Tom King was a CIA analyst or CIA operative, um, who was Mm -hmm. deployed in Baghdad during sort of the height of American operations there. And the Sheriff of Babylon is a comic, uh, you know, graphic novel that, comes out of that experience i don't think it's a memoir so much as a fictionalization but like it's it's just very interesting because of that like someone who has been in intelligence work writing about intelligence work and doing sort of a 21st Mm -hmm. century historical fiction um i have read this graphic novel once and i was like I need to make Michael read this at some point and I do want to read it again. So like makes sense for this show. Um, yeah. Yeah. So that's, uh, that's that. Uh, great. So those are, are our next two, uh, works. Um, please feel free to read along with us. If you, do it in the time between when this episode comes out and when the next one does like you probably have time to get in your own uh sort of feedback and opinions um if not we may include them in Mm -hmm. sort of a special episode later uh but either way please read along with us uh contact us in the contact section of tapestryradio.org um go ahead and put scotch talk in the subject line Contact us at Room with Scotch on Twitter. Uh, we are in the Tapestry Radio Tap House on Facebook. Request to join. We'll let you in unless you are uh, some kind of sophist. I don't know. Um, <laughs> Michael, where can they find you on Twitter if they want to contact you specifically? At M-G-L-I-L-I-E-N-T-H-A-L. I am at Bartlett on Twitter. That's at B-J-A-R-T-L-E-T-T. Uh, feel free to submit your homework. We won't do it well. We won't do it in a way that won't get you hauled off to plagiarism jail if you try to use it. We will do it funny, though, probably. Mm-hmm. Uh, so funny. The form is at tapestryradio.org slash scotchcast. Um, if you like this show... Uh, Look up our other shows on Tapestry Radio Network. We have Intermission, our backstage audio drama podcast. We have Us Play Fiasco, our Fiasco Real Play uh, improv RPG podcast. We have Pokemon Rollout. Michael, what is Pokemon Rollout? It is the Pokemon Tabletop United Actual Play RPG podcast. Excellent. Uh, We also have Freddy Goes to a Podcast, which is where three grown men read through the Freddy the Pig uh, book series from... 100 to 75 years ago uh which escalates with each book in i'm gonna say it insanity um yeah that's it anything else you want to mention michael no good 
just uh thank you for listening and until next time just remember we'll cry if we want to because it's our party and we did the sentence in the wrong order love you bye (laughs) bye Obscurantism and obfuscation. Orally observed, gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. listener. Obviated objects of oblivion. Obambulating about. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. In the Tapestry Radio Network. Tapestryradio.org. From From our our fancy fancy to to yours. yours.